five, four, three. And welcome back to Not the Public Podcast. It's Bruce Dobigan, our first podcast of the year 2017, joined, of course, by Reese Dobigan, the uh, handholder for Ronda Rousey. We'll get into that in a few minutes. Happy New Year. That hurts. That hurts deep. Well, it hurts her a lot more, believe me. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> If you say so, I she suffered some more uh, injuries than I would say. Mine's just pride. She suffered more physical as well as pride. Uh, I don't know reputation. I mean, the number of ways she was damaged in that fight. Well, her career's her career is being fucky, as we used to say in Quebec. It's over. Uh, wait, wait, say so. Anyhow, we'll talk about her in a few minutes. Uh, Holiday weekends around here, at least uh, Christmas holiday, New Year's holiday weekends, uh, a time uh, I know everybody else is watching the World Juniors and some hockey, etc. For me, it's a football time uh, between the NFL and the college bowl games. Uh, I have been busy watching innumerable football games, some of the college games just to see who the the good players are who will be appearing in the draft. Uh, some of them because, well, you know, I might have a vague interest in it. And then, of course, the NFL games. Uh, let, let's start with the NFL to start with, just because there was only really one game that mattered this weekend. Uh, I can't say it was, well, two games, I should say. The, the first game uh, settled the second game's outcome in terms of the Washington Redskins at home with everything on the line, uh, finding a way to lose uh, and allow themselves to get kicked out of the playoffs. That meant the Detroit Lions and the Green Bay Packers, when they played Sunday night, both teams were in the playoffs. No pressure on either team, and uh, no surprise. The Aaron Rodgers. While you're a Bears fan, uh, you've seen Aaron Rodgers twice a year for all of your career watching at the NFL. Uh, Aaron Rodgers did did what Aaron Rodgers does. The Detroit Lions. It seemed all a mystery to them. It seemed like it was new to him, them that he can actually run around back there. Uh, and the result, uh, second half. Uh, I I can't say anyone's shocked. I'm certainly not shocked, uh, as, as painful as that might be to hear you uh, uh, hear for you. I was not shocked at all. I, I'm just blown away that at some point this year, people were actually asking the question whether Aaron Rodgers was done as a top-level quarterback. Like Those were legitimately discussions that were being had yeah. in the universe. And I, <laughs> I mean, you watch what he did on Sunday, and you think, how, how little context do people need to think someone as good as that is done he he looked like he was he was playing schoolyard football he looks like the, uh, the the most unstoppable version of a quarterback you could possibly want you know when Colin Kaepernick was was destroying Green Bay years ago with his legs in that playoff game he thought boy oh boy who could stop this guy well the problem for him was he couldn't pass Aaron Rodgers can pass as well or better than anyone in the league right now and uses his legs as well or better than anyone in the league right now. And that includes guys who are athletic quarterbacks by definition in Russell Wilson and Cam Newton, his ability to create outside the pocket, but more importantly to find those seams and then cut up field and get those key first downs is, is an an incredible trait uh, considering how well he throws the ball. So I wasn't surprised at all. I mean, it was, you know, uh, uh, Detroit has had a bit of trouble this year uh, with their pass rush. Uh, Ziggy Ansah has kind of come back down to earth because of some injuries. And and when you can't get after the quarterback, you're not going to be able to keep him in the pocket, let alone 
any, well, but if, any... you, if you're not going to be able to get get to the quarterback, if you, if you realize you're having trouble getting to the quarterback, then it should be easier to keep him in the pocket and force him to do that because you're not running up the field. But the Lions had the worst of both worlds, not for the first time. They had guys who were defensive ends who were running past the quarterback, breaking contain, and defensive tackles stunting and going out of their lanes and allowing the guy to get out. He had, I think, 52 or 54, 56 yards rushing. Plus all of, he had nine seconds on one play where he wandered around and the fat guys on the Lions, you know, huffed and puffed after him because they'd let him out of, of, of the pocket. And, and it's, you know, it's pretty basic. Make him beat you with his arm. He can beat you with his arm, but at least don't let him have extra time to do it. Keep him in there and make him do the job from the pocket. And they didn't do that. And, and again, they're not the first team to have this problem. He's done it before. Uh, and it's, it, it just makes you despair, though, that you see the team twice a year, all these years. Aaron Rodgers beats you the same way every time. Well, last year he beat us with a Hail Mary. But he beats you the same way every time getting out of the pocket. On, on the Hail Mary, he got out of the pocket. They, they allowed to me, him to roll to me, to me, that says less about, um, you know, teams like Detroit who, who seem inept at defending him, more about what Aaron Rodgers is capable of. I, I don't think that even if you had uh, a defensive line – you know, like some of the better defensive lines in the league, like the Rams or, or you know, the Jets to a, to a degree, unless you had defensive lines like that, even then Aaron Rodgers is capable of destroying whatever kind of contain you have. You either rush up the field aiming for his back shoulder and he steps up in the pocket and then quickly cuts out and gets a first down on a run, or he spins out the back because you go in, you come in too shallow and you aim for the front shoulder. He's He's almost indefensible when it comes to properly containing him um, and properly pass rushing him. Most of the time you have to get at least a couple guys on a good pass rush at the same time and bottle him in so that he can't go one way or the other. If it's just the one guy, it doesn't matter. You're screwed. He, he's got all these directions he can move in. He's like an, he's like Andres Iniesta, like an incredible midfielder in soccer who can just find 360 degrees of movement. And if it's just one guy coming at him, that's that's easy pickings for him. So I I if we're going to talk about who's going to do well in the playoffs and who's going to go deep because of how they finished the year, I I really have to go with with Green Bay as my favorite out of the NFC to be quite honest because of how well Aaron Rodgers is playing. It's going to take the team, yeah. Yeah, it's going to take a, an incredible defensive performance from someone or for Green Bay's defense to just play like they have in the playoffs some years and, and you know, basically be like paper mache. Well, we had like two playoff-style games this weekend. We had the early one with the Redskins and the Giants and then with the later one with the Packers and the Lions. And it doesn't matter what sport you're talking about. When you get to the championship level, be it baseball or hockey or basketball or football, winning is about detail. It's about attention to detail. It's about coaches having a plan that, that players stick to and that you don't beat yourself. And the Lions, in their inimitable fashion, managed to beat themselves. Uh, Matthew Stafford missing guys who were open, guys dropping passes, getting caught with too many men on the field, etc. The Packers had lots of penalties. The Packers made mistakes too. But when you're the Lions and you have that sort of expectation of failure, you can't do that. And what gets me is for the third week in a row, we were leading in the uh, Giants game in New York at the half. We were leading the Cowboys at the half. We were leading the Packers at the half. 
and they came out and they had nothing in the second half, which says to me, it's about coaching. It's about detail. It's about what you can coach up a team at halftime. The Packers made some changes to their scheme, which worked. The Lions sat there and went, gee, this is complicated. So as we look forward to next weekend, he said segueing here, as we look forward to the games next weekend, I would suggest let's look at the teams that pay attention to detail. And if there is an Achilles heel for the Packers, it, we saw it on Sunday that they, make, they made a lot of penalties. They had a lot of penalties. Uh, and you can't win consistently in the playoffs that way. Having said that, uh, let's take a look at some of the games. We, we don't have to go through them all. Uh, you know, I would suggest that the Lions and, and Seattle game will be a foregone conclusion. No I don't care how badly Seattle is playing lately. The Lions clearly are not a team that know how to win at this time of the year. So we well, don't and the key, the key in that situation is that Seattle's greatest weakness is their offensive line, and Detroit's greatest weakness seems to be their pass rush. So the one way in which you could exploit Seattle, you can't. Mm. So let's talk about the other games uh, this weekend. Uh, give me another one that you're looking at. Tell, tell me a game that you're looking forward to seeing. The game that I'm look, most looking forward to, uh, definitely, I just mentioned them, Green Bay at New York Giants. I think that's the premier matchup. I think all the other games have a certain, uh, I don't want to say lackluster uh, aspect to them, but I think that those teams aren't as closely matched. Um not because they're so one team's so good and the other team's not as good. It's because they have so many more questions surrounding them. So for me, the marquee matchup, which is really going to define the playoff, uh, is Green Bay and and New York. And the Giants uh, are just as hot a team. Exactly. Uh, and and I think that ultimately, I, I know a lot of people think Atlanta's sort of like the team of destiny in a way in the NFC. Uh, and while I I think that they're definitely formidable. Um, I just I just don't see how the road to the Super Bowl doesn't go through um, one of those teams, either Green Bay or New York. I mean, not home field advantage, obviously, because Atlanta will have that. But those are the two teams that are holding all the cards. We've seen before in years past that it ultimately um, there's various factors as to why a team does so well in the playoffs. And one of the big ones is simply momentum timing. Do you go into the playoffs healthy? Do you go into the playoffs on a roll? And like you said, those two teams are going into the playoffs on one hell of a roll. Mm. Uh, and, and New York in particular, I think, uh, they're, they're really well balanced. I think their biggest weakness is the one position that normally you say in the playoffs matters the most, and that's quarterback. I think Eli's been playing. He's had probably his poorest season so far. Um you know, but this is a guy who has jumped at the opportunity when it when the time comes. He has upped his game in the playoffs when it mattered and won two Super Bowls. So I don't see how if if either New York or Green Bay, two teams that have Super Bowl winning quarterbacks uh, who are playing really hot, come up against anybody else in the NFC like Atlanta. Matt Ryan doesn't have the experience. He he's he's playing really well this year, but. Well, let's, know, not, gotta... let's not get to Atlanta. Atlanta's next week. Let's talk about this week's game. And I would disagree with you on the Green Bay Packers game against the Giants. I think the How Giants are going to. I think the Giants are going to win because it's a time when defense works. And if there's anything that we saw on the weekend, the New York Giants had nothing to play for. Nothing to play for. They they couldn't advance themselves in any way, shape, or form. And they went in and, and they absolutely clocked the Redskins at home. The Redskins having everything to play for. And to me, it was their defense. Their defense controlled the first half, allowed Eli, who has to be the most mediocre quarterback to ever win 
two Super Bowls. Uh, there's a few other guys who won one who are pretty mediocre, but he's certainly the most mediocre quarterback to ever win two Super Bowls. But somehow they keep giving him the ball often enough. They've got a running attack. I, I think Green Bay's got problems. And, and uh, you know, on the weekend, I thought they had the equipment manager out there playing DB for Green Bay against the Lions. The Lions couldn't make anything of it, but that's Jim Caldwell's coaching, you know, prowess. I think that when you, you'll see Green Bay putting out the spares that they're going to put out on the weekend, I think the Giants will be able to make mincemeat of them. Look, I mean, the young receiver, Shepard, he's proven to be a terrific addition. Obviously, you've got Beckham. Uh, you know, the, I, I just see them tearing the, the, the Packers' DBs apart. Uh, so I'm going, to, I'm going to go for the Giants, but I'm going to agree with you that, to me, that's the game of, uh, of the weekend. It would have been nice to see... Oakland and see them get off to a flying start, but they're so beat up. I mean, Jack Del Rio was, was saying the other day, he's not even sure he has enough healthy bodies to start in the freaking game. He's, he might be down to his third or fourth string quarterback. Uh, yeah. the, uh, the, the Miami and Pittsburgh game, uh, Miami, uh, you know, a team just depends what time is it. They don't have their starting quarterback. Uh, Pittsburgh has been a team that's, that's shown some resolve. So I, I would have to say that, you know, if you're going to reserve one time on the weekend, it's the late game on Sunday uh, to watch an NFL game. Well, the NFL seems to think so too, um, making it the late game. I don't know if they flex that. Did they flex that? Well, it's it's only. It, I mean, it's going to be at at four forty p.m. Eastern time, so it's not that That's late. It's not an evening game. game. It's not an evening game. They they do on Saturday. They do the two at uh, the two o'clock and the six o'clock starts, or I should say, the four o'clock and the eight o'clock starts in the east, and then of course in the on right. Sunday they do one o'clock and 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 four forty. Uh, well, I think we can both agree that on a personal level. We both hope that Green Bay falls flat on their face. Well, of course. We're NFC guys, NFC North guys. Uh, and we watch them wax our team once again. And well, actually, you know what? I'm not even sure that I want to see that happen because then I'm gonna go, well, why can't we beat them? If if Green Bay goes and runs the table and wins the Super Bowl, we can say, well, at least we lost to the best team. But I don't know. It's just that I've I've had I got that t-shirt many times over. Hey everyone, it's restocking. I just want to take a moment to plug a couple of our other podcasts. First one is the Sound and Groove podcast, hosted by Evan. He breaks down the world of music, teaches you a little bit about the history of music. The guy has an encyclopedic knowledge, so I'm sure you'll learn a thing or two. The other podcast is On to Mike with Mace and Rice. That's hosted by CFL veteran Corey Mace, along with this beautiful guy right here. We talk about a few more of the gossipy stories in sports, off-the-cuff stuff, really fun, really funny. So we hope you tune in to either one of those shows. We hope you enjoy them. And now I will send you back to the show. Um, let, let's say we're talking about football games and good football games. You have to think that the people who run the college bowl system can't be all that happy. There were a few good games. Uh, yesterday, the Rose Bowl, Rose Bowl game was a game for the ages. USC and Penn State, just fantastic. If you get a chance to watch it on replay, just a great game. Uh, and and you can see why Penn State, why people are in love with Penn State. But then yeah, I also have to say a lot of props to USC, which had a big lead, blew it, got down big itself, and then somehow managed to come back. Uh, props to all those teams. But of the four of the four teams that were in the in the uh, the playoff final, uh, the first you know the, the Alabama won, but it was boring, and the Alabama offense was boring, and you know just not very exciting. And uh, the the second game, well, you know, not much better, not much better. Uh, Ohio State was supposed to be a better matchup. They got they got bageled. They got bageled in a big game by Clemson. Clemson's a good team. 
And I think they're going to win actually against uh, against Alabama. But come on, getting bageled in, in in the semifinal when when you've got teams like Penn State and Oklahoma and some of those others that played so well. Come on, give me a break. Yeah, I was a bit. I, that was a bit shocking. Definitely, I thought Ohio State would put up more of a fight. Uh, an Urban Meyer coach team, you you generally expect to be. They made a lot of. I think the thing for me was that they made a lot of mistakes. Uh, and then they seem to get down on themselves and lose hope. Uh, with each mistake, you saw guys getting chippier and becoming more, you know, and the game wasn't over. They you know, there, this was happening. This was happening early in the third quarter when, the, you know, the game wasn't out of out of reach. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but I, I was a bit shocked by that. Definitely. And you know what? I'll, t- I'll tell you something that interested me with it was I got the feeling watching that and I had Ohio State. So I was sitting there regretting it for a long time. Uh, it's comparing Ohio State to Penn State, Penn State isn't exactly overwhelmed with NFL prospects. There's there's a couple of guys that are going to go to the NFL, but for them, that game was everything. For most of those guys in that team, that was everything. I just had a feeling with Ohio State when they got down. There's so many guys who were going to go on to the pros from that team. It's a loaded stack team. I almost got the feeling these guys started looking around and saying, "Hey, this brother ain't messing it up for for, for Ohio State. I'm not messing up my my contract." And I just didn't see any pushback. Penn State got down by a bunch. Was it 13? They were down 13 twice, came back twice. Um, Ohio State looked in the mirror and said, not today, brother, not today. And, and I think that might be one of the biggest difference. A team loaded with prospects, guys thinking of the future, and a team loaded with guys who say, this is my future. Yeah, I certainly think that that has a bit of an effect, even if it's a uh, Mike Gundy way of looking at things. Um, but... <laughs> You want to go it's there again? Hard. I mean, you lost the argument last time, but we can go there again if you want to do Mike Gundy again. Yeah, right. <laughs> Mike, Gundy, Mike Gundy came away smelling of roses himself, though. Your, your, your buddy who you dissed from Oklahoma State, the head coach. The Cowboys look good. Still a terrible leader. Still a <laughs> terrible leader. And I'd be surprised if his guys play hard for him on a regular basis like the Ohio State guys. Anyways, the point being, um, I see what you're saying. But all you have to do is look across at that other playoff and realize that, you know, Alabama just dominated. Team floated with prospects, and they they dominated from the word go. You know, they. I don't think that I don't think that that necessarily it depends Still on was the character. Nothing for a long time. I mean, it was a game that that what's the names could have got back into and and. You're right. I mean, Alabama seemed to be dominating, but it still was a ten nothing game for a long time. Well, but there's there's ways you can dominate, and it doesn't necessarily reflect it on the scoreboard. Um, the way that Alabama plays, the the style of their offense, what Nick Saban likes to do. I mean, every year around this time, we we have the same conversation about wow, look at this great. Alabama running back insert name here. And it was the same situation again. This is a team that loves to just pound the ball and control the clock and smother you with defense. And their defense is maybe the best ever. Some people think. Um, And so I don't, I I don't know. There's a way about being a leader and coaching up a team. And that's why the Ohio state thing shocked me. Cause I agree. It looked like they gave up, which, which is for an urban Meyer team. I thought, wow, like, He's he such a great motivator. He's such a great leader. Yeah. So that shocked me. That that really did shock me. Um, you know, because if you looked across at Alabama, they had been down um, and not up. I, I don't think that we would have seen the same quit, or I would hope we wouldn't have seen the same quit, because, you know, as a, as a fan or a, as an observer of the sport, you'd 
I think that those two guys are two of the best coaches and two of the best leaders and can really galvanize their players. And you saw it this weekend. One guy, Nick Saban, did everything. His his players looked motivated and ready to go and controlled that game. And the other Urban Myers team fell apart. Yeah. With a freshman quarterback too. I mean, that's that's the Alabama thing. I just I couldn't believe now now, of course, the drama that came out after was of course uh the offensive coordinator for Alabama, uh future head coach of the Florida Atlantic University Owls, who play over on uh, play over in Boca Raton and whose campus is over on Donald Ross Road in, in Jupiter. Uh the uh, Lane Kiffin he must have got fired. There must have been something after the game. They must have had a meeting in the room, uh, and, and Lane Kiffin was shown the door. I mean, they said all the polite things about it, but you know what? Why would you have brought him in for the first game if he wasn't going to stay around for the second game? So clearly, the, the play calling and the, and the lack of production from the Alabama offense in general, something was wrong there. Nick wasn't happy. Now, knowing Mick, Nick, who is so Machiavellian, he may have just uh, said, you know, we look pretty bad. Uh, what's a way I can make it look like it wasn't my fault? I, I think I think maybe there was some of that element, you know, kicking Kiffin's butt out the door might have made it look like it was Kiffin's problem with the offense and not his. So, but but it, it kind of an odd situation and a very underwhelming offense. And, and, you know, you saw the same thing with Ohio State. Their quarterback just... Not, not ready, not not there, not having enough answers for the questions that he was being posed in that game. So uh, a little bit disappointing. College football, I love to watch it because there are always big plays, and there were a few games that, as I say, were worthwhile. But by and large, you know, they're, they're, they're marquee games. Just, you know, there wasn't a whole lot to get excited about. Yeah, I'd have to agree. I, I, think, I think part of the problem with the playoff, and I have to agree with people, is that the playoff robs a lot of the bowl games of, of meaning. Uh, you know, there's tradition and there's all these things and that's great, but the USC Penn state game. You're saying there's no, tra that, there's no tradition in one of the players getting arrested at the belt bowl for stealing from the belt store. Come on. That's a well, tradition. That's long, that is a long story <laughs> tradition of college football in general. Hell that, that is a tradition at the pro level. Like Adam Jones just very recently. So even apparently. grown men make mistakes like these young up and coming students. Well, so. I thought I thought it was a really prosaic touch for him to shoplift from the store that was the sponsor of the freaking game. That that took a particular touch. That was well, a, even a, worse. He had a gift card given to him by the Belky. Like they I they know, every I player know. got one. So he spent the four hundred and fifty dollars and then stole. <laughs> On top of that, I. And he's supposed to be an NFL draft prospect. I mean, I honestly don't understand. Like. How in the world this guy is going to get drafted? If he gets drafted, it's just, uh, anyways, talent supersedes everything at the end of the day. So now again, I was watching more games than you were. Did you, I don't know how many games you saw, but was there somebody, uh, who you saw playing, uh, this dur during the draft, uh, during the, uh, uh the bowl season that impressed you a guy who you said, I can't wait to see him play in, in, in the big leagues. Well, the, the part problem for me is I don't follow college football prospects as closely until the draft. So most of the time, I don't really know what I'm looking at, which is a good thing in a way, because if you watch the game, not knowing, you know, those outstanding players can really pop off the screen at you and you can go, who's that guy? And then you realize, of course, well, Mel Kuyper says he's going to go in the first round. And so there's a fun aspect to that. So I think the, one of the things in the Penn state USC game uh, I thought was really interesting was that Penn State just still, I don't know how this happens over generations. 
they just turn out linebackers like it. They're a factory. They had a couple linebackers in this game that were one guy had a pick and broke his arm on the pick return. But before that, he was he was balling out number 11. I can't remember what his name was. And then they had a second linebacker, um, a guy they said grew up in California in Orange County, but said, oh, I'm not a California kid. He went out to Penn State to play linebacker and he had a number of of excellent stops, a couple of really big hits, you know, and he had a Mike Singletary look in his eyes. I saw these two guys and I just thought, man, Penn State keeps on turning up these linebackers. But in terms of raw prospects, the guy that I was most impressed with was um, the receiver for Clemson. I want to say he's the ninth Mike Williams wide receiver I've ever heard of. Who's he's huge, great wingspan, great body control. Uh, I was really impressed with, with his play, but if, if he follows in his namesake, he'll wash out of the NFL in a few years. Well, only if he's drafted by the lions. Yeah. But otherwise uh, I, I'm more interested to see who, who you're, uh, who you're high on. I mean, you, you pay attention to these guys far more closely than I do. Well, I, I mean, I did watch a few of the guys, uh, um, the Penn state guys that you're talking about, the, the, the linebackers aren't even necessarily the top linebacker prospects, uh, in the draft. I mean, they're guys, they're guys who, who are going to, I think they're both of them coming back for one more year. So, uh, I mean, that's how stacked they are. Uh, g- guys who I was impressed by, uh, who I hadn't seen before, uh, a guy named Derek Barnett from Tennessee. He sort of plays a rush defensive end. I think he'll probably play a stand-up position in the pros. I think this guy looks like Khalil Mack. I think if he's there for your Bears early in the draft, I think you can do worse than to, to take him. He was a beast. He owned the game. I mean, he absolutely. they were double-teaming him, and he still killed a quarterback time after time. I liked him a lot. Uh, Miles Garrett from uh, Texas A&M, he could be the number one draft pick overall. He's a defensive end. Uh, I liked him a lot. I agree with you about uh, about uh, uh, um, Mike Williams. I thought he was a beast, uh, uh, and he's going to be a real handful in the pros. Um, some guys that I liked as well: um, Reuben Foster, linebacker for for the uh, for uh, Alabama. I, he's certainly a guy who's going to be there in the pros. Uh, yeah, was, well, I, was really impressive. Um, Alabama is just—I mean, you want to talk about a program? They're just so stacked. You well, could pick outside any linebackers. There are two outside linebackers are one, two in, in, in terms of the prospects yeah. for outside linebackers. That's Tim Williams and Ryan Anderson. Uh, thought a lot of them. Uh, Marshawn Lattimore is a really good cornerback, but you know what? Ohio state, they just, as, this, as we've already said, they, they just weren't up to it. Uh, in yeah. terms of a quarterback, uh, if somebody's looking for a quarterback, I didn't see one here. I watched Mitch Trubisky. Uh, I, I saw Deshaun Watson. I think he's come a long way. I think he's getting closer. He could be a Teddy Bridgewater kind of guy. Maybe. Uh, but Trubisky appears to me to be a guy who should go back for another year and 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 uh, do that. Uh, Luke Falk was just awful for Washington State. Total, total no-show. Brad Kaya from Miami is another guy who was getting a lot of love going in. Uh, you know, wasn't much to say about him. Uh, another guy, not that the Bears need a running back, but another guy who is certainly going to go in the t- – who, who played this weekend, as opposed to Leonard Fournette, who, of course, didn't play. Christian McCaffrey didn't play. But, boy, Dalvin Cook, I'm telling you, if he doesn't go in the top 10 to somebody, uh, you know, you, there's got to be somebody who needs a running back. He's, he's going to be the, the answer there. He's just fantastic. This is one of the best 
um, uh, drafts I've seen in a while for running backs. I also saw a guy named by the name of Matthew Days for North Carolina State who are also impressed me. So there's there's a list of guys. Wayne Gallman, another guy for Clemson, a running back for Clemson. We'll see him once again on Monday night uh, in the in the national final. So those those are a few of the guys who I saw who I was really impressed by. Uh, it's, it's hard to watch a game and see an offensive lineman and get impressed, uh, but you can see the defensive guys. Uh, l- l- there's 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 going to be some very impressive talent coming out and a lot of pass rushing talent coming up. Um, one other guy I should tell you about that I liked as a defensive end, by the way, Solomon Thomas from Stanford. Another guy who I think is going to impress a lot of people when he gets there. And Jordan Willis from Kansas State. How can I forget him? Uh, K-State, another place where you go and you're pr- trained properly by Bill Snyder. I liked him a lot. So there you go. There's, uh, there's maybe 10 names there for you to kick around. The key question is, who are the Lions going to get at the end of the first round that they'll promptly screw up? Well, right now we're uh, we're sixth seed in the uh, in the in the playoffs, right? I believe sixth seed. So I suspect that means we're going to uh, we're going to be around twentieth or twenty first. There's there's some young man whose future is about to be ruined out there. <laughs> the Lions' first round picks aren't as bad as their second round picks, but yeah, he's he's going to sit there with his fingers crossed, hoping, oh, I just want to get past the Bears at three. I don't want to go there, and then he's going to get picked up at the Lions. You the just, I mean. We talked about this last week when we were talking about prospects and training and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, measurables are great. And seeing the guys in the underwear Olympics is great. But, boy, just show me a guy who's got some tape that looks like he's a football player. That's what got me about Derek Barnett with Tennessee. Man, the guy looked like a football player. He had instincts about where the ball was going to be. He didn't miss tackles. I mean, that's that's what I want to see is guys who have instincts to play, not guys who look great in the draft. Uh, who look good in the pro- combine? Who look good in in those kinds of things? Show me a guy who who knows how to make a play when the when the you know the chips are down. So there you go. A couple of few guys who I really did like, and uh, I think there will be some teams who will screw up some good players. But if you're if you know what to do with a prospect, I think there's some. This is one of the better drafts defensively, I think, in a while. Yeah, that that's what I've been hearing. So. I'll keep my eyes peeled. Now, speaking of no defense, uh, let's. I guess that's our segue to uh, to Ronda Rousey. Oh, I see what you did there. Bada bing. Um, give us your short take on it. I mean, I read other people, but it, the issue isn't over until, of course, you you've spoken. So go ahead. Well, to me, it was a tragedy. I, I honestly, I know a lot of people were cheering when she lost. They were. It was, you know. They, everyone was so excited to see her lose and lose in the fashion she did. She was put Why? away so quickly. I think Ronda Rousey has not made it easy on herself um, over the last year and over the course of her career. You know, part of the a lot of the traits you look for in a fighter, a guy or a guy or girl that's going to be successful, are those traits about you know tenacity and aggression and uh, focus and determination and toughness. And Ronda had all of that stuff. But on top of it, she had tied it together with this attitude that was just she it seemed like she never believed she could lose to anybody. And you want that competition. You want that competitiveness. But she wore it on her sleeve like it was a like with a bad attitude. She put other people down. She refused to shake hands after fights. She didn't show respect where it was due. She would say things publicly about, oh, yeah, I, I think I could beat the heavyweight champion of the UFC in a fight, you know, and people would kind of go like, okay, there's, there's, there's one thing being confident. And there's another, just basically, you're basically saying that Cain Velasquez, the heavyweight champion of the UFC is not worth his salt. 
he couldn't he couldn't beat the 135 pound woman. So she set herself up for failure publicly. Her public image was by the time this fight came around was about as tenuous as it's as it's ever been. Um, you know, she cut herself off from all the media um, responsibilities that are required leading up to this fight. She didn't show up for the press conference prior to the fight. She didn't she didn't do any interviews. She only did select interviews, which in the PR world is a good tactic if you're doing Ellen or you're doing these big key PR um, um, coverage opportunities. But she basically turned her back on the the people that helped make her, the, the MMA media, the people who who championed her and essentially said, this is the next big fighter, this is the next big star. And she turned her back on all those people. And I think a lot of the hardcore fans recognized it early, uh, and it's been percolating with a lot of those people and those um, in those discussions for a year. And then the public at large started to realize it to the point where when she lost, a lot of people, more than half the people, I would say, at least the place I was watching and, and online, were happy to see her lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and were, were more than happy to see her lose in the fashion she did. So you're saying she wrote a check with her mouth, she couldn't back up with her ass. Yeah, and I think... People don't mind if me, you back it up. She just didn't back it up. And I think a lot of people, for that reason, felt, okay, she, you know, you've, you, you've done all this stuff, now you got to back it up. And it, and it was, would have been another thing if she went down to the last seconds, cut and bleeding, going down as a champion. Instead, she was like in snoozy time after 45 seconds. Yeah, it was, it was sad. To me, it was sad to watch because as, as a, I enjoy sports because I enjoy watching greatness, great performances. And Ronda Rousey's run through the UFC was the thing of legend. I mean, it was, it was incredible. Her performances, um, you know, ending fights as quickly as, as she did, as dominantly as she did. She she literally put women's MMA on the map. Without her, it wouldn't it wouldn't exist. Um, and then what ended up happening to her is, you know, obviously it's an individual sport. It's partly on the athlete who loses, but in this sense, it was also partly, I think, on the people that she put her trust in, her coaches and 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 those people, they did not prepare her. A, they didn't prepare her for the first fight that she lost against Holly Holm. She looked absolutely inept in that fight. She looked like she believed far too greatly that that she could box with a former boxing champion. But more importantly than that was, technically, she had no idea how to make her style and her fight successful. She wants to get her hands on people, flip them in the clinch with her judo, put them on the mat, and, and go for submissions, primarily the armbar. To do that, you have to cut off the cage. You have to force the person to to get close to you. And she never did any of that against Holly Holm, and she lost as a result. Mm-hmm. And so with a whole year worth to fix those problems, to diagnose her own issues, her team failed to do it, and she failed to do it. And she came into this fight and looked exactly the same and, and suffered for it, suffered for it in embarrassing, tragic fashion. Is there any woman who can who can take her place as a star? As 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 the pole star for women's MMA? No, I think uh, one of one of your favorite lines in uh, in Moneyball is when uh, John Henry says to uh, Billy Bean, you know, what is it? There's no no no. I'm sorry, wrong reference. In Margin Call, Jeremy Irons, the head of a big 
big bank mutual fund company says, listen, there's three ways you win. You're first, you're better, or you cheat. And she's not going to, she can try and cheat, I'm sure. She can do whatever she wants, but she won't. She can try and be better, but she's not anymore. But she was first. And no one else is going to do what she did and be the first one to do it. I think that that time has passed. I think that 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 momentum that she had, it's never going to be replicated. No other woman's going to replicate it. Someone might come along and be just as dominant. But in terms of being the star and having that captivating presence, no one's going to be able to replicate it because the, the, the uh, conditions for it just won't replicate themselves. They won't happen again. Well, there you go. Uh, there's your uh, listen. I left you time to do the uh, the obit for uh, Ronda Rousey. Uh, speaking of obits, by the way, you as a film guy, I don't know. Did you ever deal with Bill Williams at the at TIFF in Toronto? The um, the, the the man who uh, one of the founders of TIFF in Toronto passed away this week. Uh, I can't say I ever had the pleasure. No, um, but yeah, I, I saw that news, which is uh, it's you know it's sad. It's um, Toronto. The Toronto Film Festival is hugely important within um, the film industry, within, uh, I mean, it's the beginning of awards season. It is so important for Canadian film and getting that exposure. Um, and, and then also it's, it's one of the most accessible public film festivals. You can't go to Cannes as a regular person and go see a movie. You literally have to beg for tickets in front of the Palais. In Toronto, you can go see it as a regular fan. So, so I think that... Um, the People's it, Festival. It's the People's Festival, and I think it's yeah, it's a sad day when when uh, someone who had such a heavy involvement with it, um, you know, the the, fu- the founder of it, um, passes away. It's um, the sad day in the in the Canadian film industry for sure. Well, our, my good friend Alan Gregg, of course, was on the the board of the Toronto Film Festival for a while as well, and he, he certainly would know him. And by the way, that's my way of segueing and saying. Uh, you can uh, catch Alan Gregg and a number of my guests on my podcast, The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Uh, that's on AnticaNetwork.com. Uh, this week, uh, we've got uh, uh, an interesting guy. He used to be the ed- the uh, an editor and a, and a writer with the New York Times talking about how it is that newspapers like the New York Times missed all the stuff in the election. How is it that they had the blinders on so much? He explains a little bit about that. Michael Sipley. Next week, we've talked to Jim Till, who's one of the Canadian pioneers of stem cell therapy. Uh, so that'll all be coming up. And hopefully uh, sometime this month, we'll be having our podcasts on, at least in the full count. Uh, we'll be on uh, Sirius Radio, uh, Channel 146 Canada Talk. So lots I still haven't gotten an invite. Month. I don't know what's going on. I still haven't gotten the invite to be on the full count. What's going on? It must be in the mail. Oh, yeah, that's oh, it. I'm in the same city as you. That should take a day. Held up in the Christmas rush. What can I say? Uh, he's Reese Dobig and I'm Bruce Dobig, and you've been listening to Not the Public Podcast. We'll catch you again next time.